Hello and welcome to another Cork and Taylor Wine Podcast. Luke Taylor here and I'm back and I've got gas. This guest is looking at me, I've got gas in a good way. As an extremely effective and affordable wine preserver, we are very excited to partner with Silvador Brands as the officiate, as official wine preserver. Open whatever you want, whenever you want, 100% air gun gas. There's, there's this key point, gas. Silverado Wine Preserver allows you to do just that. Go to silveradobrands.com and click the For Your Home to Order. When checking out, enter Cork and Taylor in the discount code and receive 10%, 10% off your entire order. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review because we'd appreciate it to get us to global domination. And if you really want to support us, join our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash Cork and Taylor. So I'm excited. We've kind of got a Canadian here, or I'm, well, I'm Canadian, but we've got kind of a part Canadian, which I'm excited to just taste him before. We've got uh, Sheldon Richards from Paloma Vineyards in lovely Spring Mountain of Napa, California. Sheldon, I'm going to welcome myself to your house. Your legal tasting room, your whorehouse, whatever you call it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> That's an intro, huh? Yeah. yeah. We're getting. Where, where do we go from here, huh? Where do we go from here? But this is a really interesting. Now, I was just telling you, I interviewed uh, Steve Pride before this. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me, more so, the more I'm ingrained in, in Napa wine culture and what have you, how much correlation there is. And you guys actually used to sell grapes to Pride. And I guess somehow decided to start making your own. So in the beginning, this was all raw land, forest. There were no buildings, no vineyard. Um, The credit goes to my parents. They cleared and planted 10 acres in 85, five more acres in 87. And then eventually when the vines had matured, they started selling fruit. I think they sold a concrete and uh, can't feral anyway um pride came along about a decade after us and bought an old rundown vineyard and started doing a replant of the vineyard while they were replanting and waiting for the vineyard to mature they bought fruit from the valley floor they weren't happy you understand the difference between valley floor fruit and mountain fruit they weren't happy with the wine they were making so they came to us in 1994 and said we want to buy all your fruit we want to make spring mountain wine while we finish replanting and maturing our vineyard. Um, so we kind of deal with them and said, we'll sell you the bulk of our fruit, but we want to hold back a little bit and start making our own wine. We didn't have a winery then, so we wanted to make it at Pride. They wanted their winemaker to teach us how to make wine. So we did that from 94 to 99. By the end of 99, Pride came to us and said, we have enough fruit up and producing now. We don't need yours anymore. So we built the winery in the summer of 2000, started making the wine on our own. Our second vintage deal one was the Wine Spectator's Top Wine in the World. And, and that's when you didn't have to pay for advertising to get a good rating, huh? <laughs> we still don't pay for advertising. Yeah. I don't, you know. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that amazing to think? All right, your parents came up here in 1983 because of Dan Duckhorn. He showed them the property. Essentially, yep. Yeah. And I read a quote somewhere that your mom said she had 7,500 children, children yeah. and she named them all. <laughs> That's a lot of names. Yeah, I, I won't make that same claim at all. But yeah, she would say that. Those were her babies out there. Yeah. And she, for the first decade, 
as you know, a vineyard winery operation eats money like a machine. Absolutely. So dad stayed in Texas and paid the bills and visited when he could. But my mother farmed this by herself for the first decade. That's crazy. For a 50-plus-year-old woman who had never grown grapes, it's impossible. What were your parents thinking when they bought this if they didn't have the background? <laughs> That's a really good question that I, I guess I never asked them. They invested in the duckhorns. That's how they end up, ended up in this valley. Oh, okay. And um, obviously his Three Palms Merlot is pretty famous. Mm -hmm. So when they planted, when they bought, and he sent them up the mountain and said, I hear there's a piece for sale up on Spring Mountain. What were they thinking? I think they were thinking about a retirement spot. When you grow grapes, you yep. never retire. Well, that's what the Prides did, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pride. They said this is their retirement project. I'm like... <laughs> it doesn't work that way. No. And so I'm very proud of what they achieved. But the fact that my mother farmed this by herself for 10 years, if you ask me today, is there anybody, male or female, that can do that? I'd say it can't be done. What was going on with your mother? What, what was the best advice she gave you when you kind of came into full cir circle in the... Uh, the, I guess, what, 2003 uh, three was when you joined. Yeah. What was some of the advice he gave you? Because it seems like this was her, though it was your parents, Yeah. there's a special kind of part of this vineyard of her. I, I, I think like she didn't put it exactly this way, but I think what I gleaned from working with him is that you just have to work hard. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I'm a farmer, I'm a winemaker, I'm an owner, I do all the tastings, I have one employee. You have to be passionate or you couldn't do that. Right. I work seven days a week, right. 12 hours a day. Harvest, it's two months of 18-hour days. So That's called the vintner life. Yep. People don't understand that. They think it's all you do is drink and <laughs> yeah. bonbons. And Wouldn't that be nice? I, I will say that um, uh, from the time I was young to... Today, my parents both worked really hard. Yeah. And that's what I got from them. But you have to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, ain't that the truth even now? And whatever you do, you have to, you know? I yep. mean, that's, that's the truth. You have to love what you do or it's, it becomes work. So what was planted here when, when your parents bought the property? Was, was anything forest. planted? Nothing. Nothing. Zilts, like not even one vine, just nothing. In the 1880s, it was an Italian family. Their name is Boku, which is more French than Italian. But anyway, yeah. when we planted up here in the beginning, we found some redwood stakes. When you grow through the top gate, there's a vine there that's corralled. It's a Zinfandel vine that we found growing up a tree 100 feet. So we've head pruned it, and we keep it there. It doesn't get the proper sun or water or anything. Right. It's for good luck because they planted Zimbabwe at the very top here because we found redwood stakes when we ripped this vineyard. But then it went back to forest. Yeah. What, what, what was the decision to do Cabernet and Merlot? Because that's all you grow, right? Just those two varietals. I now have Cab Franc, and there was a time when we had Syrah. Uh, so to oh, answer that Syrah. question... When we put this vineyard in in 85, nobody was growing Rhone varietals in California. When I say nobody, I'm sure there are in, exceptions. In, in but Napa, yeah. yeah. In Napa. And we loved, I managed restaurants in Canada back in the 70s. My parents were in Texas. Our favorite wine was Shadow Enough to Pop. Mm -hmm. So it's a Rhone blend. Mm -hmm. We planted a little tiny block that uh, made 75 cases of wine. Um, we called it our house spaghetti wine. Okay. 
it was for our own personal consumption because nobody was making Rones back then. Now you have the Rhone Rangers and yep. all kinds of yep. Rhones. Yep. And so um, we planted Merlot, I think, because my parents loved uh, Duckhorn's Three Palms yeah. wine so much. That's damn good, though. It's kind of an anomaly to me because if you remember the movie Sideways when they trash Merlot, I actually kind of agree with the premise of that movie. Really? They planted Merlot up and down the valley floor, and it's too hot down there, and the soil's too rich. It likes the cooler climate that we have up here because of that ocean breeze that we have, and we have volcanic soil. So multiple soil types and multiple minerals, minerals that gives you more complexity in the wine. Mm-hmm. So those vineyards are pretty much gone. The great Merlots and Napa are up here in the hills, and you were at Pride today. Yep. Kena makes a great one. Switchback. Another one, mm-hmm. um, I think you need to be up in the hill. And I agree with that as far as Cap Franc goes as well. Really? Hmm. So I now have two blocks of Cap Franc. What are you, you going to use the Cap Franc for? I'm going to make a pure Cap Franc. Okay. But it's so, only one of the blocks has come into production. So the little bit that I have in barrels right now, I've added 25% Cab Sauvignon just to get it to enough quantity that I can bottle it. Mm-hmm. But once the other block comes on stream and I'm going to plant one more block, um, I'm trying to mitigate crop loss from shatter in the Merlot. Okay, It's really susceptible to shatter. Anyway, I'll make a pure Cab Franc. Okay. So cool. that's the hope. Yeah. So how big was... So you came back... And then you won this award with Wine Spectator, Wine of the Year. What did that do for Paloma Vineyards? I can't even imagine. <clears throat> so I don't think when you're, when my father was a geologist, my mother was a housewife, they ever aspired to be in the Spectator's Top 100. Mm-hmm. But the Spectator, I think, um, in particular Jim Lobby, really like the fact that we do our own farming, our own winemaking, our own tastings. And uh, even even uh, Doug Horn said, I'm not sure if you should grow Merlot up here. Really? Well, because of the rain, the fog, shatter mm-hmm. in Merlot. And my parents said, I, my mother towards the end would say, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have planted Merlot. That's funny. It is kind of funny, and I think she was serious. If you, I mean, we make a great Cabernet. You're going to taste one in a minute, but we would have been one of many very good Cabernets in Napa. This way, we're kind of in the top five Merlots in Napa, maybe top ten in the world. What what percentage of Napa wineries make a Merlot still? Less than five, less than ten. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I, I couldn't put a number on it, but I think you're probably right at less than five. Mm-hmm. And again, my belief, this is just personal, I'm obviously not very objective about this, is that they're up in the mountains. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever think about doing Zinfandel up here? I'm not a big fan of Zinfandel. Okay. That's just a personal yeah. thing. I'm just curious because I know um, uh, Steve Pride was telling me how Bob Foley told him you're not growing Zinfandel up there. Yeah, I... Do you think it would do well up here? Especially your vineyard? I don't think there's anything that you could plant on Spring Mountain that wouldn't do well. Mm-hmm. It's a very special soil and climate. Mm-hmm. And I think it lends itself to red grapes, particularly. I mean, there's some whites, but right. it's predominantly red. I just am not a big 
the only Zens that I've ever really gone crazy over are Turleys. Yeah. And uh, it just not... In 2014, I poured out 24 barrels of Cabernet and 1,400 gallons of Merlot that was affected by the drought. And people say, why didn't you second label it? Why didn't you bulk it out? I believe that your reputation is more important than any amount of money. And I didn't like the wine it made. It made essentially a um, um, Amarone. They raisined on the vine because of the drought. It could have been a Palomo Amarone. <laughs> I, but I don't like Amarones. <laughs> Me neither. No, I, I, I just, like I like Rapasso actually. They're a little bit softer. You know, it's not yeah. as uh, you know dried, fruity, raisiny to it. That's what it's I don't like, like yeah. about it. Is they get yeah, pruny, jammy, porty, and I go, why would you do that to a good grape? Yeah. And so I'm and so I poured out a lot of wine. Yeah. Um, that must have been fun. <laughs> well, it was a hard decision to make, but it's still the right decision to make. Yeah. Uh, I, we've got customers that have been buying wine from us for 29 years. Obviously, they can't all come here and taste the wine before they buy it. Right. I can't. In but there's f- a level of trust, though. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And and I'm not going to betray that trust. Right. So I'd rather pour out whatever the value of that but wine. Is, but isn't that true in business? Because I find with in the in the sales world of wine sales, at least on the distributor level, is there's sometimes wine people, wine salespeople, try to get that sale. Mm-hmm. And they're not looking long term, but in the sense of if you do right by them once or twice, to them you'll always do right by them. So if you say it's a good vintage, all right, sight unseen will buy the grapes. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. I used to run restaurants in Canada, and when you come into the restaurant, it's quality of food, price of food, or quality of service. And I could serve you and your wife ten times. And you love it, and you come in, and one of those things is out of whack, and I never see you again. Yep. So your reputation, I it, I own a public relations marketing company. It's easier to keep a customer than to find a new one, yep. especially in this oversaturated market. Yep. There's too many wineries. <laughs> yep. So I go way out of my way to handhold and take care of those people because mm-hmm. they've supported me. Right. When mom died, everybody said, well, now that your mom's gone, you can charge tasting fees, you can raise the price of your wine because it's too cheap. My response was, out of respect for the business model they created, it's made us successful. If it ain't broken, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. Out of respect for the customers that have supported us for all those years, if I jacked the price of the wine, I'd lose them. That was the bottom line. Yeah. So we were $45 for our 01. I just raised our prices on January 1st. And I raised them because you my insurance to. in 2020 was 35 grand. Last year it was 75 grand. You this year it's 100. I mean, your bottle costs have gone up, your labeling costs, Forks, your barrels. Yep, yep, if it wasn't yep. for the euro, yep. that would have tanked me this year. I mean, yep. it's. And so I didn't have a choice. I finally. You initiated for minimal tasting fees. 45 to 46? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I've gone up $3 every three years since we won wine of the year. And yeah. you asked the question, what was it like? I arrived here in August of 2003. We won the award in, I don't know, November. Mm-hmm. My parents are kind of perfectionists, and it was kind of overwhelming because for two months, the phone rang here nonstop. Emails, faxes, phone orders for wine we didn't have. It was a little overwhelming. I thought the wine parents, you didn't have. <laughs> we were already sold out, basically. 
How much did you produce of that that vintage? Uh, twenty five hundred cases, and it went like that. Well, it was two thirds sold out before we won the award. Once we won the award, it oh, was crap. gone overnight. <laughs> I mean, literally. Um, so it benefited us for the next five or six years. Um, the movie Sideways didn't hurt us at all because I think we're a step above the right. average Merlots, and I think right. that's what right. saved us. Yep. I thought maybe during the recession, we did take a hit. Sales went down. People either bought less wine or they spent less money per bottle. Mm -hmm. And so it did affect us. So we don't sell out anymore like we used to. Mm -hmm. um, but we're pretty consistent with our scores and our ratings and our prices. And so we have a very good uh, fan base. All of our business here is word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And when I say word of mouth, I talk about my customers that send me visits, but I also talk about the locals here in Napa, whether they're in hotels and they're concierge, whether they're in the tour business, mm -hmm. drivers, limo operators, whether they're restaurant waiters or owners, and other wineries. They're all sending me business every day. Everybody in this valley is complaining about being slow. I'm so overbooked right now, it's almost overwhelming because I do all the tastings myself. It's because I don't charge stupid money for wine. I don't charge stupid money for tastings. Why do you think wineries do that? Well, the Valley Floor is now very corporate. Yeah. And so it's the bottom line at the end of the day. Yeah. We well, they, well, but they have to recoup their $300 million they buy for Schaefer or whatever it is. Well, that's certainly part of it. Um, and, you know, you see hotels doubled after COVID. So if you want to come to this Valley with your wife for a four-day weekend... It's $5,000 between tasting fees and wine and not hotel. If you're Luke, not if you're Luke Taylor. Well, <laughs> there's exceptions. $4,999.99. And that's Canadian, not American. Yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's... No, it's I, listen, it's... It's greed. It, it, you know what I've, I've also noticed, too? And I, and I talked to someone about this. I don't know if it was today or yesterday. And I said, I still love Napa. I, I, it's a happy place for me. And I told my wife... I mean, yeah, shit, look at that view. It's horrible. Uh, <laughs> looks like Akron, Ohio right now. <laughs> well, maybe not but yeah, I not guess my, my point is um, is I told my wife when I was when I was driving I mean I was tired I, I was up since 4.30 you know again a plane flew in yesterday whatever okay I'm not complaining but I'm just telling you this is like my happy place I've probably been to Napa 28, 29, 30 times come for podcasting you know what have you there's still something about it but what I will tell you and what I said this to it was um, I don't even know who it was maybe it was Schromsberg because they're they're an old, I mean they've been around for a while. It's it hasn't changed much. I mean let's be honest. No. Nope. And Hugh's a great guy, and I know his parents. Yep. I'm sure we're great people too. But the thing is, you you come here and it's like you go down 29 or Silverado Trail. I haven't been down Silverado Trail yet, which is weird. But Highway 29 quite a bit. It's like you you know it's going to be expensive, whether it's a restaurant or winery, and it gets to a point where who's going to be able to afford to come here. And I think you said to me off off thing is there's 600 wineries, okay? So there's 600 wineries, and if like I said to you, if I come for a four day weekend, I go to three wines. That's that's doable. You do one in the morning, you do one after lunch, you do one after that one, okay? Yeah. Give 90 minutes to two hours, whatever, okay? For the experience, and there's all these bloody experiences. You know, you can have a private chef five hundred dollars per person. You know, you can do this for one hundred and fifty, and then the 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 vint old vintages for you know two hundred. You've got all these these bloody tastings, reserve, reserve tastings, what have you. But if I've only gone to twelve wineries, and there's six hundred wineries, 
Or I'm going on a shelf to buy wine and there's 4,000 cabs from Napa and I'm going to buy a case. When is it like almost too much when it's just like we're just trying to see whose balls are bigger than the other ones? I mean, that's what it almost feels like to a certain extent, not with you guys and, and, and others, but I, I just feel like, and I don't really hang around the corporate ones and I, I'm not going to say who, but there's one sure. in particular that I went on a tasting and there were, all they asked was how much are you going to buy? And I'm like, well, you, you you get a trade discount. That's what they said to me. I said, well, I understand that the wines were good, but you know, I mean, I have access to all this wine that I can buy at cost because I own the distributorship, or I'll support. Let's say if you're with, um, are you with Vintage? I think you're with Vintage in, in Ohio. Okay, I know a lot of the reps. They're good people. Whatever. I would rather buy it through them and get a discount. This is not a legal bond. Maybe it is, but whatever. But it happens, obviously. Um, or trade. Then then give it to them who all they care about is how much money they're going to re- get out of my pocket. Yeah. And it's not a long-term... And these aren't... This is not a winery that's been around for a long time. You know, they... they, they you know, so that's the disappointment part. And that's what hurts me when I see it. But that's not all of it. That's not Paloma. That's not Pride. That's not Keenan. That's not Laird. That's not Matera. Monticello Corley, which has been around for a long time. Yep. Hourglass. So there's still the last of the Mohicans. So I, I think tasting fees originated because, let's face it, the big wineries have a dedicated building, a dedicated mm-hmm. staff, and yep. they pour yep. a lot yep. of wine. Yep. So it was cost recovery in the beginning, and I, I can accept that. Yep. Then it became for-profit, and they are in business, so making a buck is okay. Yep. 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 But now it's a qualifier. If you can't afford a $150 tasting fee, you can't afford a $700 wine, we don't want to waste time on you. And... And it used to be they would waive the tasting fee if you bought wine. Now they're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Hotels doubled after COVID because they're all trying to make, make up for what they yeah. lost. Restaurants have gone up. I can't blame restaurants because food costs have gone up. Well, but again, yeah. we've become an elitist valley. And there's not enough rich Americans to sustain this valley. And I think we're going to see. So when's it going to pop? When's a balloon going to pop? How's it going to pop? I think it already is because I'm hearing stories from not just the Valley floor, but even up here, and I won't mention names again, where they're not getting any tasters. And they've got a full staff in there, and they're doing two people here and two people there. And I've had people come up here and say, we were just at this winery, and they wanted to, they they said, if you're going to do a tasting, you have to buy three bottles or six bottles of wine. I don't know what your wine costs. I don't know if I even like it. Why would I commit to something yeah. like that? Yeah. And that's where we've come down to. Yeah. So then they come up here because I don't play those kind of games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think wine is a social animal. It should be affordable and shareable. And when it's 300 or $500 or $800 a bottle, you pull it out of the cellar and you go, is this the right night to open this? Or do I want to share it with these people? Mm-hmm. I think wine is should be shared and enjoyed. What what, what price is there a, a special price point in your in your mind where it's just like it, there's no difference between an X amount of bottle to an X because in my mind once you get past 150 in my mind 150 you know because I'm in this business I get to taste all these absolutely overpriced yep. wines and I'm not going to say that they're bad wines most of no. them are pretty damn good wines yeah. but when they put a price tag on them of 300 or 500 or whatever yeah. Yeah. then it stops being good yeah 
It's um, it's just grape juice at the end of the so day. So you're not on the allocation list for the Sauvignon Blanc from Screaming Eagle? <laughs> Michael Keenan said, uh, are you on this? I'm like, hell no. You? He's like, hell no. <laughs> I'm like, Do you, is that my Christmas present? Did you sign me up? He's like, no. Yeah. I mean, it just gets to a point where it's not about the wine anymore. And I and listen, I respect because I know how human nature is. They want everything free and they want it cheap. And, and that's just human nature. Yep. Okay. Yep. I pour it. I do the tastings. It's like, oh, I'd like to try another one because I'm deciding which one bottle I'm going to buy. I'm like, <laughs> I just spent talking to you for an hour and a half. And I'm not trying to be like money driven. But like if I don't sell, I don't make money. And it's kind of like you too. You've got costs. And then it becomes, and I get it. You kind of push maybe some people away that might just, you know, just pour, 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 don't buy anything and leave. Okay, I get that. You got to recoup some costs because this all costs stuff. You don't get free stuff. But it gets to a point where I'm going to spend $100 and I have to buy three bottles to maybe get it waived. What if I don't like the wine? And I've never had it. That's the, that's the You hit the nail on the head. If I've had the wine before, like if I've been to... Uh, you, you know, layered for, I mean, I'm, I don't pay for tastings there, but if I was that layered and I like the wine, okay, I get it. I understand sure. that. But if I come to Paloma and I've never had it before and I read some stuff and it looks good, but let's be honest, wine is subjective. Absolutely. Just because you love it, I might not and vice versa. And Absolutely. that's the beauty of it. And there's no, it's, it's not that the wine's bad. I mean, there is bad wine out there. Let's let's be we honest. We all have different palates. Right. Different That's it. Palates, right. We right. taste differently. Right. Absolutely. Um, but I, I think it gets to a point where I want to try different stuff. And I'm like you. I'm fortunate that I'm in the, in the business. So I do sure. get that opportunity. But the average person doesn't. And now you're going to say, all right, you say the trip is $5,000 for a couple. Yeah, it is. Because it's four to $600 to stay at a mid-priced. I mean, you could stay at a courtyard by Marriott. It costs you $300. At a courier by Marriott, and you're not even in, you're in like a Vallejo or, you know, American Canon or Fairfield. <laughs> no, what's happening now that I'm seeing is everybody's staying in Sonoma because hotel prices are less. So they do a road trip over here for a day and they come and taste with me and with others. Yep. But the other days, they're going to do wine tastings in Sonoma because it's out their backyard. Mm-hmm. And so we're losing them already. And I keep hearing these horror stories of, and I would say up here, there's 34 wineries on Spring Mountain uh, Road. They all make good wine, but 26 of them charge stupid money for their wine. And I refer my customers to small wineries that make good wine at fair prices. Uh, and that's why I get so many referrals. I get them from other wineries. What other industry in the world do you have that you share your customers with your competition? But but it's it's funny you say that because I was talking to someone like Jeff Smith, okay? A, mm. a competitor sells just like Paloma, but vin, Vintage is not really a competitor. They're much bigger than than my my distributorship. But one Hourglass is uh, with another distributor, and it's direct competition, okay? They're sure. a little bit bigger than me. They've been around a little bit longer, but we're, we're fighting for that same little piece of the pie, okay? Got it. But what I told Jeff is, as I've known Jeff because I've met him a couple of times, seems like a, is a good dude. Not seems like it makes good wine. So if I see that on the table or see that somewhere, and someone's like, "Oh, Hourglass," and I know I'm not going to get this, so I'm not going to say, "Oh, you really should try." If you if you, you think of that, you should try Laird or Keenan. I don't do that. Okay. So the fact of the matter is, if I see it, and actually this happened at a wine shop where she was talking about doing the HG three by the glass, she said, "What do you think?" I said, "Why?" Well, I actually know Jeff. So there's one point. And two, it's a good wine. And she's like, okay, even though 
I don't sell it and I'm not going to make any money for it. But that's what wine should be. It's a shareable um, experience. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And that's what, it, and let's be honest, the small, the smaller guys are trying to just push the rock up the hill. It's interesting for me because I get a lot of young people that come up here to taste and they don't want to do young people at most of the wineries because they know they don't have any money. Mm-hmm. I look at them 20 years from now. They're going to send me their parents, their neighbors, their friends in the short years, term. 20, five, five, 10 years. Two when they years. have enough yep. money, they're going to come back because I gave them the same amount of attention that I give to the Texas woman or the New York finance guy that buys 10 cases. Mm-hmm. I treat them. We, we, I joke with people often. We all started by drinking Gallo Jug Wine or, or um, uh, White Zinfandel or whatever. And somewhere <laughs> along the road, somebody took us from the dark and into the light. I'm and still so, waiting for someone to do that to me. <laughs> I, I think you're way past that. But anyway, yeah. I, 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 I treat everybody equally Good. and give them an education. I don't tell them what they taste. Because we all taste differently. Yeah. I just don't believe in trying to... Maybe you get spice. Maybe she gets smoke. Maybe he gets cherries. Maybe she gets strawberries. You're all right because yeah. it's your palate. Yeah. So I don't ever talk about wine. Power of suggestion is if I say strawberries, they're going to taste strawberries, whether it's there or not. That was delicious. What did we just have? This is a 13. 2013? So, yeah. That was a horrible, no, 11 was a horrible vintage, according to the press. It's really interesting you say that because I just got an email from a customer uh, two days ago, and he said, I just opened your 11. It was absolutely stunning. So 11s were fantastic. Well, the Spectator trashed the 11s. It was a cool year. It was a difficult year, and they trashed the 11. But remember, 95% of our grapes and wines come from the valley floor. Our world up here, our terroir, soil, and climate are so different that the 11s up here were fabulous. And so, but what that creates is a challenge on how do you sell an 11 after the spectators trashed it? Well, how do you sell 2020 when you had COVID and uh, fires? I didn't. I didn't make any wine in 2020. <laughs> but, but do you see what I'm saying? Oh, it's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, I think, but I think now, maybe back then it was a little bit more weighted to the media. Now I think it's just like, you know what? Someone trashed it. You know what? I'm going to see and taste it. Because I have, I have, I had 11s from Keenan. I had 11s from Laird. I had 11s from Dariush. I've had 11s from uh, Larkmead. Those are all good winemakers. No, but they were all excellent wines. Yeah. Now, they might not have the ageability because they don't have the acidic you know, characteristic of it. I but think they were the still spe- delicious. The Spectator did come back a few years after they that did. and said we were a little, yeah. you know, we're... we're we're going to reevaluate the 11s. There was some good 11s. But wouldn't you admit, because, I mean, you're in the industry and you've done it for a long time, wouldn't you agree that if it's a good winemaker, they do smart practices, good vineyard practices, good everything, yep. it, it might not be the the best every year, but it's still going to be a consistent product, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, let's face it. It's the same, Here, it's the same vineyard, the same farmer, the same winemaker. The only change in all that is Mother Nature and the curveballs she throws at you. And you just have to learn how to hit those curveballs. And every year is different. If people were the same, it'd be boring. If wine was the same every year, it'd be boring. That's why we love 
the wine industry. It's never the same. You're constantly learning and growing. Let me ask you, why did you pour me a 13 Merlot? That's what I'm pouring in the tasting room. This is a... <clears throat> my mother died six and a half years ago, but the last three years of her life, um, she went through strokes and seizures, mm-hmm. and she lost the ability to speak. So she wouldn't answer the phone. We didn't do tastings for two and a half years. <laughs> there was other issues that came along with that, right. but I'm now trying to sell out of the 13, the 12, the 13, and 14 that should have been sold years ago. Yeah. But... And that thing's got still some ageability. Oh, I opened a 94, a 95, and a 99 last winter, and then, and then an 01 wine of the year. They're all still drinking well, all of them. And that's 28, 29 years old. Um, I give some of that credit to Spring Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a special place to mm-hmm. grow fruit and make wine. Um, right now in the tasting room, we're tasting a 13, a 14, and a 16 Merlot and then a 16 Cabernet. Uh, I have a 17 and an 18 out, and I have a new wine called Ode to Barber, so it's an homage to my mother. And uh, it's gone over really well. It's an 18, so it's young. Is it a blend of Cab and Merlot? It's 54% Merlot, 44% Cab, and 2% Cab Franc. So is that the first wine you're kind of playing with the Cab Franc with? Yeah. I've come to the conclusion in the 80s and 90s, I thought Cab Franc sucked here in the valley. And I've come to the conclusion because they were growing them on the valley floor and they need to be up in the mountains like Keenan and Pride. And so I think Cab Franc is the king of grapes at the end of the day. Really? I think some of the Cab Francs I've been tasting. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I've never been a big fan. No. And and, and I'll tell you why. It's very, um, especially in a blend when you have too much Cab Franc in there, it just like, I feel like it punches through the wine. And I, but I just had Pride's Cab Franc, and I had it about a month before at an account in Columbus. Uh, he shared, try, said, try this. And I told him I was going to interview Steve Pride and stuff like that. And I've had Keenan's Cab Franc, too, again recently. And I'm like, okay, this is what Cab Franc should be. Should be. And I think that's the problem with like Merlot and Sideways, is the problem with Merlot, it's either really cheap or it's over 50 bucks. There's no in-between. There's very few. I mean, the only one I can think of off the top of my head in 30s and 40s that makes a, a pretty good Merlot was um, is Monticello and then also um, Crimson Creek. Um, Don't know. Pine Ridge. Hmm. Pine Ridge actually makes, and Miner actually made it, last time I tried it years ago, made a pretty good thing. But I mean, they're more smaller producers. But I think that's the problem with Cab Franc. Like, you've got to spend money to have a good cab, cab, well, just any cab franc, except from Washington or, like, Niagara, Niagara Peninsula. Well, they are going up in cost. There's no question about that. But, but again, when I first planted the first block of cab franc six, almost seven years ago now, Keenan invited me to their pre-harvest staff barbecue. And they opened a, it was 15, 16, 17-year-old cab franc. I drink a lot of really good wines because yeah. of what I do. Yeah. It may have been one of the best wines I've had in the world. I was just stunned by it, and I love I'm, pride. I'm not going to tell Michael that. I'm going to tell you, you know, I, I met this guy, Sheldon. He said, your wines, Cab Franc suck from like 20 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I don't need to give him a bigger head. Yeah. They do a good job yeah. there. They're good people. They're yeah. down to earth. Yeah. They don't charge stupid money for yeah. their wine. They work hard. Yeah. They're fair. Yeah. 
That's what we need more of in this valley. And I think also, too, for Spring Mountain, and I hope you guys work together, because when you think, and we talked about this, once you get up here, you ain't got cell service. So it's a pain. And and I would think if you, let's say, go up to Barnett, okay, well, Pride's higher. So let's say you go to Pride, then maybe you go down to Barnett, and then maybe you come down here. Or maybe you go from here to Keenan to somewhere else. And you'd think like Spring Mountain, really for people, you shouldn't be coming for one winery. It, that's my opinion. If make it like two or three, it's the same thing with Howl Mountain, or if you're going to, yeah. you know, Calistoga, which is, you know, obviously up, you know, if you're staying where I'm staying down in the, more in the southern part of Napa, I, I think people want to try everything. You know, like they want to go to one in, in in Spring Mountain and then one in Howl Mountain, but all the wines. I mean, I tasted Pride. I've tasted yours. I've tasted one. Obviously, taste more. But Keenan too. I've tasted Barnett, I've tasted Schweiger, I've tasted Kane, I've tasted, you know, some, I'm trying to think one other I've had on Spring Mountain. They're all different. So I, I, I would agree with you. There's a lot of really good reds up here. It's, again, the volcanics mm-hmm. and the climate. Um, again, there's a half a dozen that make really good wines at fair prices. The rest of them, in my opinion, have gotten too expensive, and that takes the fun out of being able to drink wine. Yep. Um, we get that morning sun when it's cooler. Mm-hmm. When it's hot afternoon sun, it's baking the valley yep. floor and baking the face of Howl Mountain. It's glancing off the top of ours because we're facing the opposite direction. So we don't get that intense heat. We have an ocean breeze, which keeps it cooler, which means that our grapes ripen slower so not only do you get vine-ripened fruit, but you get vine-ripened tannins. We'll taste a cab here in a minute that's six years old. It's so soft in the tannins, and that's climate. Yeah. We're very lucky up here. Yeah. It's a special place. Yeah. Well, why don't you get that for me? I'm gonna, we're going to do this little section, and I'll kind of give a spiel, but it's called Sip and Spit. And it's kind of a... Um, Oh, it's kind of a speed round, which let's be honest, is never a freaking speed round. Um, it takes a little bit longer, but it's just very light, very airy. Um, it, it's not sponsored by anyone, but we'll make it by Silvador Brands because they're good people. Uh, the people, Gary and Jim, that do uh, Silvador Brands. As you use the Corvin, and we've had Corvin on the uh, the podcast. So, um, so it's kind of, it's going to make you look into your soul. You might never talk to me again, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so while you're putting that back, Think about this and you're how you're going to answer this one. The biggest misconception regarding Merlot. Everybody. How do I answer that question? Everybody likes Cabernet. That's the king of grapes, right? I defy putting one of my Merlots in a blind tasting of eight Cab- um Cabernets and put that Merlot in there, and it's going to win the tasting. People are going to choose it and be totally shocked when they discover it's a Merlot. Why? Softer on the tannins, um, prettier nose, and yet it's big like a cab. Yeah. So it's it's a cab lover's Merlot. I've heard that a couple of times this week so far, <laughs> but it's true. I say it all the time. Yeah. Cab lover's Mer- Merlot because yeah. it is. Well, that's, again, I, I think we're lucky up here on Spring Mountain to have three, which is Keenan, Pride, and Paloma. Um, last year, I was invited to participate in a tasting in Florida. Not participate, right? but to give them a wine. And they did 16 blind Merlots. 
People paid two grand a head to taste 16 wines. They got an eight course dinner and they got to drink the wines with dinner. They, it, there was four Chateau Petrus at two grand a bottle. There was three Le Pen at $1,800 a bottle. There was two Mazzetto at $1,600 a bottle. So it makes sense. Okay. Some riffraff yeah. like me. Yeah. At the end, the guy that hosted the tasting, and it turns out he has the sort of store in Florida, uh, wine store. Um, he said, I'm going to tell you what's going to go on to Instagram tomorrow, but I want you to know up front, out of the 14 people that tasted, all I asked of them was to choose their favorite wine, not 1 to 16, yep. just their number one wine. Eight of them chose the Chateau Petrus at two grand a bottle, but the other six picked you at $66 a bottle. He said, who's the real winner here? And he said, and you're the only American Merlot we invited to participate in this. We wanted you to go head-to-head with the big dogs from Europe. It's not like winning wine of the year like we did no. one year. But what it says is that winemaking is getting better and better globally. Yes. As we understand yeah. the science and the art of it, wine gets better. I'm certainly not a university-trained winemaker or, or grower. And so I learned through the school of hard knocks, but I have a great head start having fruit from Spring Mountain. Yeah. And um, it felt great. Two months later, I had eight people tasting in here. They were all from Columbia. They all live in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all MDs. And one of the guys halfway through the tasting turned around and said to me, um, I was at that tasting in Florida at two grand a head. And he said, I picked you over the Chateau Petrus. Wow. That's why they were here. Wow. I hope, so, you, I hope you still charge them full price. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I still got to make a living. So what you're tasting right now is a 16 Cabernet. Okay. And I think for a young cab, you're going to see it's very, very soft on the yeah. tannins. Why is mountain fruit better? Give me in 10 words or less. Oh, well, uh, 10 words. Um, cooler climate. That's two. Um, volcanic soils. Four. Smaller berries. Eight, six. I can't add Canadian math. <laughs> yeah. But I want you to think about high school physics. The smaller the sphere. We didn't have that in Canada, dude. Yeah, I took physics in Canada. Not in Ontario. Really? Nope. I was in Alberta. I took physics. Yeah. And I never liked it. But regardless, <laughs> high school physics. Right. The smaller the sphere, the more surface to volume. So our berries up here are the size of my baby fingernail. Mm-hmm. On the valley floor, they can be as big as my thumbnail. Yep. Smaller berries, more skin polyphenol concentration to juice ratio. Why don't you go Petitza Syrah up here? You know, I I didn't like Petite Syrah for a long time because it's too big and kind of forceful. I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah, but when made beautifully, it, it can be very restrained. I've come, I've come back. I did. Uh, you've been to Switchback? I have not. You should go because she's mm-hmm. another one now. I don't know who's... Bob Foley from Pride yep. has been making her wine yep. forever. Yep. Yep. But she switched from Bob recently. And I think it's Kurt Vingay that's making it now. What's funny, because that's who I'm meeting at 3 o'clock today. Oh, Kurt? Yeah. He's a great guy. <laughs> yeah. um, but I did a vertical of 15 years of her wine one time. Mm-hmm. And I don't like them when they're kind of big and chewy yep. when they're yep. young. Yep. But we started with a 15-year-old and worked our way forward. That 15-year-old wine was so classy, elegant, beautiful. I had a whole new understanding of Petit Syrah. As they got younger, they got back to that. So my takeaway from that tasting was um, let them age for a while. Let them mature before you drink them. 
that could that could go to sleep for a little bit in a good way. Oh, this one? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no. It's nice. It is chewy, like you said, a little bit, but it's very like nice, velvety mouthfeel, elegant. Yeah. yeah. I think you know what you did. I think you, you you stumbled on the right rock on that one. If you could trade with any other vineyard, where would it be and why? Trade what? You just, like if you could do an equal trade, any vineyard, anywhere. I would probably go up to where Rotor are and uh, Nadalia up in that valley, Anderson Valley. Okay. It's just, it's slower. It's not as wine-centric as Napa is. Uh, there's some great wines coming out of there. Um, but no, I, I won't leave this place until no. I drop. I I'm, built this house. I built my house over there. This is my home. I won't ever go anywhere. The biggest mistake and what you learned from it in winemaking? The biggest mistake... What was the learning experience? Maybe I don't want to say biggest mistake because that means you maybe made a horrible wine or something like that. I would say probably 2011 because we had rain all through the fall and I kept walking the vineyard looking at clusters trying to see mildew and I couldn't find any. But the first small pick, and I bend ferment, I don't tank ferment because mm-hmm. my picks are small. First ferment or first batch to come in, I maybe had three or four bends. And I destemmed them. I also toed them. I put a lid on them. Came back in the morning, put the lid off, and they were white with fungus. And I went, "What the fuck am I going to do with this?" <laughs> I mean, I was stunned. And so I asked, "There isn't a person in this valley that won't offer you a tool, a hand, or an idea to help you." So I asked a lot of people what they thought, and um, the solution that seemed the most probable was so out there I kind of went okay I'll try that and it worked and so I prophylactically did that with my entire pick through 11 and the 11's a great wine but the one, only one I've ever really worried about mm-hmm. interesting favorite vintage and least favorite vintage that you've produced making you think now yeah um, what's the one that sticks out? I have people that come to me all the time and say, what's your favorite? My response is, do you have kids? What do you say when somebody asks you? I can tell you 99% of the time, I can tell you which one's my favorite. I got three. <laughs> three kids. It, it depends <laughs> on the week, the day, the month, the year, because that's a moving target. Hour, minute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Second. Um, I guess my favorite in some regards might be the 07. Um, Dad was still alive. But he was going through cancer, so he was going through chemo and radiation. He was in San Francisco Monday to Friday. He was here on weekends. It's the first wine I made on my own. And a spectator only gave us 89 points, and my mother was pissed at me. That is the freaking kiss of death. 88 and 89 points ranking is like you just don't even print it. Just say don't even put it in there. I don't understand. I mean, they did that too. It's a, men- it's a mental, it's a mental thing with, with consumers. Yeah. And so I got eight. My mother looked at me and what, what are you <laughs> doing to us? I got my mother. My father looked at her and said, you know what? You can't hit a home run every time you go to base, yep. go to, to the plate. Yep. So back off, leave him alone. Well, that one. But an 89? <laughs> but I'll tell you what it was. It was just so tight you couldn't drink it. Mm-hmm. When it hit four and a half years of age, it turned that corner of the bottle. You could pour it and drink it. Do they ever do they do the Raiders ever re-rate? They sort of do because remember they came back to the eleven yep. and and said yep. it's better. So yes, they do, but not by the winery, just by the vintage as a whole. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't think they understand the kind of impact they have when they raid a, a, a Napa Valley vintage as poor. Even Keenan came to me one year, this is years ago, saying, we can't sell our old leaven because, because the spectator trash it. Nobody wants to buy it. And it's still a great wine. Yeah. So that's the power of the media. Yeah. Yeah. So seven was, in my heart, the first one ever made on my own. And it's still, I just got a, a call yesterday from a lawyer in Florida. And he said, I know I'm going to order a bunch of your wine, but do you have any 07 or any 10 left? And I said, not on the not the seven. I might be able to squeeze you a couple of bottles at 10. He said, those are my two favorite wines of yours. Yeah, that's, so it, that's amazing. It's it's refreshing to have somebody come and say, I'm drinking your 07 right yeah. now, and it's 15 years old, and it's a stunning wine. Yeah. yeah. And it's a vintage that Spectator kind of yeah. trashed. Yeah. All right, last question. Okay. If they did a Hollywood movie about your life, who would play you? <laughs> oh, God. Who would play me? Now I'm trying to think of his name. <laughs> he's blonde. He's got a brother that's an actor. He's been in a lot of movies. He dated... Uh, oh, um... Uh, he, Owen Wilson. Yes. Owen Wilson. I, I can see I, I can see that. I like his character. Yeah, yeah. When he plays in movies, he's kind of a little bit humorous, a little bit yeah. serious, and he doesn't take himself too serious, I guess. Yeah. And you, you've got like a Hollywood Hollywood or like a rock star named Sheldon Richards. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good. No relation to Keith. <laughs> no. No. No, no. Hopefully I don't look that bad when I get to that age. <laughs> I'm almost 70. I think I look a little better than he does. <laughs> Plastic surgery. Manipulation, my mm. friend. They do it in wine. They do it on body parts. Well, he should be getting some of that done. Yeah. Well, Sheldon, thanks so much, man. It's really been a pleasure. Yeah. Wines were excellent. And obviously we'll talk a little bit more here. But uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Don't forget forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, uh, try if you want to preserve some wine uh, very effectively and efficiently. Look at Silvador Brands. Uh, the link will be in the bottom. And if you want to support us, go to patreon.com backslash Corbin Taylor. But more importantly, all I care about is keep drinking the good stuff. And we'll see you next week on the Corbin Taylor Wine Podcast. Bye.